Welcome to the Hanu Health Podcast, where our mission is to help you to breathe better and stress less. On this show, we discuss a variety of topics and provide practical suggestions for improving health and well-being. However, none of the education, tips, and tricks provided should be taken as medical advice. Your medical doctor is your best bet if you have medical questions. Also, on this podcast, we interview numerous guests from diverse backgrounds, interests, and may carry some unique ideas. Hanu Health as a company does not endorse all statements provided by guests or condone all suggestions or protocols discussed. We just like hearing about cool people doing rad and new things. So sit back, relax, breathe, and enjoy the show. Hey, hey, welcome back to another episode of the Hanu Health Podcast. It's Dr. Jay Wiles here, as always. And it's the first of the month, and everybody knows who follows this podcast, what happens on the very first Friday of every single month is a Patrick McCune and Jay Wiles Q&A podcast, where you, the listener, submits your questions for Patrick and I to answer on all things breath work, stress, health and wellness optimization, all those sorts of things. But unfortunately... I'm not joined by my normal co-host, Patrick, Mr. Oxygen Advantage himself. We just had some scheduling snafus and things going on in the crazy life of Hanu and Oxygen Advantage. So sorry, you're stuck with me today, but I hope that I can still provide a lot of value because yes, I'm going to answer some Q&A that comes live from you guys. Well, not really live. You submitted you know, on Instagram, on email on whatever other outlet you could find us on, you know, you called my cell phone, whatever it was, you submitted it to us. So we have a couple questions that we're going to go over today that I think are really, really intriguing about things like posture during breath work and heart rate variability and how that's affected by posture. And then we'll talk about some other cool things. So stay tuned for that. But I also have some other really cool things to talk to you about. Uh, The first would be two amazing studies that just recently came out. They were just recently published that talk about the effects of slow paced breathing and mindful awareness of breath and how that can affect things like cognition and working memory and how effective those can be as means to mitigate the effects of stress. Um, Yeah. So stay tuned for that. The other thing is, is I want to talk to you a little bit about what I've been doing lately for health and wellness optimization and how I've used biometric data to inform kind of my decision-making on health behavior and health behavior change and modification. So of course, I'm going to bring in Hanu on that. So without further ado, I should probably mention something really awesome that's going on within our world here at Hanu. And that is that we are face down, you know, head deep into the development of this product that we call Hanu. And Hanu, again, is Hawaiian for breath. And the device that we are making is a wearable product that is a constant daytime stress monitor. You can wear it at night as well, but it's really meant for this being like this constant daytime stress monitor, stress radar that looks at your biometric data all day long and makes a determination as to kind of what your autonomic nervous system or your stress response is telling you in any given moment. And then we also operate as like this all day stress coach. And we've been just, you know, heads down on this and hardcore in development. And the one cool thing that I will mention about all of this is that we have been really focusing on 
what I consider as like our game changer and huge differentiator in the market uh, uh, concept or feature within the device. And that is you as the user being able to identify the triggers, the cues, the causes of stress. It's one thing for us to kind of alert you as users to say, yeah, it looks like there's something going on within your nervous system. Um, it's another thing to then help you self-regulate or to train a different response. And all of these things are great. They're really, really intentional. But what if you wanted to take into consideration the root cause? What's going on within your internal and external environment that might be affecting your overall stress response and how you adapt to stress and what it's causing you stress and how it relates to the severity or the duration of your stress response. And what we've done is we've developed something that we call life events. Within the framework of the application, life events is your ability to log the exact event, whether it's you're driving on a commute, whether it's you're writing a scathing email or reading a scathing email, which is, happens a lot. Not at Hanu. We, we, we're very on brand. We, we never get stressed at Hanu. Uh, but, but anyway, this intention is for you to be able to look back at your past few hours, your past day, your past month, your past year to pick up on the trends of the what. What are the causes of stress? What are those triggers? What are those cues? Not so that then you can intentionally avoid them, but so that you can become more aware that when they do occur within your environment, both internally or external cues, that then you recognize it sooner and then you can begin to self-regulate sooner. Because we know that volatility, emotional reactivity, these are things that tend to compound. These are things that tend to build um, over time. And our, 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 we become, we, we tend to have more of like that, that hairline trigger over time where it's like a lot easier to pull the trigger, uh, or the fuse is small if you want to use that analogy or reference. Uh, but what we know though is that we can elongate the fuse, if you will, or we can detect kind of what is causing the fuse to become smaller. And that's, life events. And the great thing is, is that we get to look at your subjective response, um, kind of what was the experience, like how might it affect your stress response and your adaptability and things of that, um, so uh, of that sort. So that's life events. Again, I think it's a core feature and it's going to be one of the, if not the most valuable aspects of wearing this device and it tracking biometric data is the ability to log these life events and see why, why did you have changes in heart rate? Why did you have changes in heart rate variability uh, over time? And if you look at mine, it'll probably be like five o'clock um, or five 30 when I get home um, and the kids are already like, wah, going nuts and stuff. Um, I'll probably have a lot of life events on my bar that say kids or uh, relationships in <laughs> whatever category that is. So um, yeah, use that as a predominant feature for you to track the, the what, the, the so if you are now interested in buying Hanu and you haven't done so, you can still get an amazing deal. 40% off. The device normally is $300. You can get it for $180, only $29 down to reserve your spot. Right now, fully refundable, hanuhealth.com. Or if you want to get straight to the pre-order, you're like, I don't need any of the other website junk. It's not junk, but you know, stuff. Hanuhealth.com slash pre-order. Get yours today. All right. I want to start off the Q&A podcast with talking a little bit about something that I've been doing that does involve the use of, of Hanu. 
Um, and this is not another pitch for Hanu, but, you know, take it, you know, at face value for what it is. Uh, one of the things that I have to do, uh, I don't have to do, I love doing, it's a part of my job here as the chief scientific officer and one of the co-founders of Hanu is that I get to test Hanu all day long in every situation, kind of put it through, um, you know, the ringer, if you will. And one of the things that I've been really tracking, and I've looked at this in the past, but I've been taking a really deep dive, um, is those. And the reason I started off with life events is because I've been looking at a major life event that changes my HRV. It changes my heart rate pretty substantially. And it's food. It's nutrition. It's what I put into my body, both the quality of the food and then also the quantity of the food. There are some individuals nowadays that have spent more time on the quality of food and negate the quantity of food. And I think that that's a bit of a misstep. And I think that's a bit of a mislead. And the reason being is because there's enough scientific research out there to indicate that yes, quality is of uh, it's insanely significant importance. But what's also important is the quantity. So let's talk a little bit about that. And let's talk a little bit about what the research has to say about food and nervous system response and stress response, um, and maybe even mental health in general. And then also too, how can you track those things and utilize your biometric data as a means to inform you of how food is affecting your nervous system. Let's talk about some general rules and then let's talk about my findings and the research. So some general rules from a physiological perspective. When you start to eat any type of food or you put any food into your body, there are a few things that are going to be happening from a physiological perspective that are important for this discussion. There are millions of things that are happening from a physiological perspective at any given moment, uh, really billions and trillions of processes, which is kind of crazy. But if we think of things from a microcellular level, there's a lot that's occurring. But there are a few really important nervous system, and I should clarify, autonomic nervous system uh, changes that occur when we eat. One of the first things to remember is that there are actually three branches of the autonomic nervous system. The parasympathetic nervous system, our rest, digest, more or less, our relaxation response mediated predominantly by our 10th cranial nerve, the vagus nerve. The second one would be our sympathetic nervous system, generally known as our fight, flight, energy, energy uh, expenditure uh, branch of the nervous system. And then the third that receives less notoriety and discussion, but equally as important is our enteric nervous system. Now, enteric nervous system is our GI tract. It's our gut. It is everything that has to do with the processing and metabolism of food. And so with that said, we have to remember that then, therefore, if we activate the enteric nervous system, then we activate the autonomic nervous system because they're one and the same. This is just another division or another branch of the autonomic nervous system. And if we come back to what we are referring to, if you're just a first time listener in regards to the autonomic nervous system, these are automatic processes within the body that are affected um, from the central nervous system, but also communicate back to the central nervous system, which is your brain and your spinal cord. So let's talk about again, this idea of food. So when we intake food and we activate our autonomic nervous system, one of the predominant activators is our enteric nervous system. So now that we have intake and food into the body. Now we must, in, now we must 
activate um, kind of two systems in order for things to run functionally. Uh, one would be is that we have an activation of the sympathetic nervous system. Number two, though, is we have more of a predominant activation in order to have good quality digestion of the parasympathetic nervous system. We know that there are vagal innervations, so innervations from the vagus nerve, which is one of the direct contributors of our relaxation response that are within our GI tract, within the enteric nervous system itself. And so in order to activate a really good smooth process of digestion, we really need to have a mass activation or a larger activation of the parasympathetic nervous system, which means that engaging the relaxation response is highly important. So this is why it's so effective to do some breathwork practice or some biofeedback practice prior to eating because we want to prime the digestive system. If the sympathetic nervous system is overly activated, then this can actually inhibit the digestive system. One of the greatest conversations that I've ever had about this was actually on a previous Hanu Health podcast with Dr. Stephen Cabral. And one of the interesting things he said is that if we have this overactivation of the sympathetic nervous system and a more or less a deactivation of the parasympathetic nervous system, then this can cause a lot of GI or gut issues. And the reason being is because when the food sits within the GI tract, it allows for a larger amount of fermentation, which increases things like methane gas. It increases things like potential intestinal uh, permeability or like leaky gut. There's a lot of problematic things that can happen. If there's things like toxins within the context of our food and it's staying within the gut because there's mass activation of the sympathetic nervous system or the fight or flight stress response, then that stuff is hanging out way too long within the gut and is not allowed to be defecated or passed through the GI tract. And then we have or can have some significant problems. So again, though, anytime back, and that's more pathology, uh, but for everybody, no matter what, when you put food into the body, we need to digest it. And if we need to digest it, that actually means that we need to have a lot more oxygen-rich blood sent down to the GI tract for full functionality. So if a lot of oxygen-rich blood is being pumped down to the GI tract, that actually means that the heart is going to receive signals from both the gut and then from the brain, the gut-brain axis. And what's going to happen is, is that the heart is going to pump faster because we have a lot more activity that we need to engage in what we refer to more of this like energy expenditure. So this is again where both the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system are actually working in tandem. We need both of those. So there's again this misconception that we pull off the brake and we activate the gas pedal and when we put on the gas pedal, we deactivate the brake. Not true. They do work antagonistically, but they also work very complementary with one another. And you can see how this can be quite complex and quite confusing, but that's physiology for you. So in the end, heart rate is going to go up. So what does that then mean? Well, we know that there's a direct linear correlation between an increase in heart rate and a decrease in heart rate variability. Does that mean then the person when we eat, we are always stressed? Well, in a way, actually, yes. Um, so we know that uh, when the uh, parasympathetic nervous system is slightly deactivated and we engage the sympathetic nervous system in order to help uh, with increasing heart rate and increasing blood flow, uh, then what ends up happening here 
is that indeed the body is experiencing kind of like this level of hormetic stressor. And so this happens anytime we eat. Um, so again, you can see the tandem work here of the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. But an activated uh, heart rate or an increased heart rate and a decrease in heart rate variability isn't inherently bad in this situation. It's a normal part of physiology. So what should you expect? You should expect that when you eat food, your heart rate's going to go up and your heart rate variability is going to go down. However, we know that this can be significantly influenced by what you eat, when you eat, and then how much you eat. And this is where things get a little intriguing and a little more complex, but bear with me here. So one of the things that I do personally every single day, and I'm not advocating this for everybody, I'm advocating this for me because I've done so many experimental tests and seeing kind of what works effectively for me and then what does not. I intermittent fast every single day. So I generally will stop eating dinner in the evenings at home, 6, 6.30, and then I fast until about 12, 12.30 uh, p.m. every single day. And that's my routine. Now, there have been some really interesting research studies that have looked at people who do uh, intermittent fasts, let's say it's, you know, 14, 16 hour fast. And the uh, they've looked at kind of how they break their fast, the quantity of food that they engage in, the quality of food that they have, uh, and then how that affects overall biometrics and bio data. Uh, one interesting thing that we noted uh, or that has been noted in this research is that when people do eat food that is uh, more inflammatory for them, um, and this could be very you know bio individual, obviously, but also things that are kind of mass inflammatory to most people, things like highly refined seed oils and high linoleic acid and processed sugars and overly processed foods and things of that sort that can cause most individuals an inflammatory response. Uh, we see that there are immense changes in biometrics, including heart rate and heart rate variability. Now, those are two biggies. We see that the more inflammatory the foods that people eat, the more impact that it has on them, not just because it drops heart rate variability significantly and increases heart rate significantly. Um, again, we expect um, a change in those no matter what you eat, but more so with inflammatory foods. But the one thing that we see is that these effects persist longer and longer. Um, so uh, as opposed to just kind of like a really normal quote unquote healthy meal. The other thing is quantity. We know that a lot of people who intermittent fast, um, kind of maybe intentionally or unintentionally, a lot of times when they break their fast, a lot of individuals will eat way more calories and way more food in general than they would uh, if they were uh, not fasting and maybe ate breakfast. Um, so they eat kind of like a larger, let's say, lunch if they're bringing it around lunchtime, um, could be considered their breakfast, <laughs> if you will because they're breaking the fast, they see that when these individuals do indeed break the fast, they typically will break it with more food quantity wise than is kind of the typical American meal. Um, so that's an interesting one. So how does this relate to you and how does this relate to me? So what I have been studying and what I've been finding in my own research, wearing my Hanu, uh, just monitoring changes kind of throughout the day, especially around the breaking of fast, but also too just after meals, is that there is a direct correlation between the amount of time heart rate variability is suppressed and heart rate 
uh, heart rate itself has increased after the meal, all dependent on the quality of food, but also, and maybe even more so, the quantity of food. So say, for instance, I've been doing some tests. The tests have really looked at uh, the quality of food that I've been eating and the quantity. Quality of food for me doesn't change a lot. Um, It's quantity of food that I have a little bit more of a way of manipulating. However, I've just kind of been playing around with some things. Uh, For instance, my cheat meal if you will, comes from a local restaurant here in Greenville, South Carolina called Tropical Grill. It's a Cuban restaurant uh, that does like a lot of like rice and beans and high quality, you know, chicken and beef and pork with sauteed veggies and all sorts of goodness. And that's kind of my cheat meal because it's a little bit heavier on um, more like the carbs essentially because of rice and beans. Uh, But I've been trying that out and been eating kind of maybe a little bit more of a larger quantity and then um, doing it after I break my fast and then comparing that to kind of like my normal lunch, which would be like something left over from the previous night, like, you know, a filet of salmon or some steak or maybe some beef with some veggies, uh, and typically a lot lower in, in carbohydrate and a lot less food in general than this, you know, tropical grill (laughs) that I've tested on. And one of the main things that I see is that, For both of them, heart rate variability suppressed, heart rate increase, normal physiology. Uh, But one of the things that I've seen is that more significantly, heart rate variability is decreased and heart rate is increased after my higher refined type meal and higher quantity food type meal. The other one, which is most interesting to me, is the effect over time. How long does it take for my heart rate variability and heart rate to return to baseline. And I think that's a really interesting question to be asking, not just how significant does it, is it affected, but how long is it affected? Well, we know that the more quantity of food that you uh, ingest, the longer time it's going to take for you to digest. It's just basic human physiology. So with that, you're going to see a larger suppression of heart rate variability and a higher increase in heart rate and changes overall in autonomic functioning. Is that indeed inherently bad? It's a good question. And I think it's the right question, right? Just because something happens doesn't mean that it's necessarily bad or deleterious to the body. Here's what I've noticed both anecdotally, and then here's kind of my theory behind it, kind of based on human psychophysiology. My theory is that it can have some negative ramifications, especially if you have a high level of interoception, if you're very connected to your body. One thing for me is that I just noticed the effects of kind of feeling a little bit more uh, like fatigued and non-energized after I eat that larger, more processed or refined meal. And even if I eat a non-processed or refined meal that is still high in kind of quantity, it's a lot of food, I still feel that way. However, there's something different about the feel that comes with something that might be a little bit more inflammatory or a little bit um, different from the norm for me, both in quality and quantity. And one of the big things for me is that, yes, cognition typically will go down. And we'll talk about cognition here in just a second. But the other thing that's significantly impacted here 
is that because I'm so connected to my body, like I just feel my heart rate higher. I, I just feel like something's a little bit off for a longer period of time. And that in and of itself can be a little stressful, it can be anxiety provoking, it can make me feel a certain way. And so I don't like that feel. And I think that it corresponds, my stress level starts to correspond with the food that I'm intaking and my actual biometric numbers, both heart rate and heart rate variability, especially when I see that it's taking longer to stabilize. And so you may ask yourself, okay, so like how long should it take to stabilize? Well, what we see typically is then is that depending on the meal, anywhere from about 30 to 45 minutes, you should have back to stable baseline numbers. However, what we do know is that heart rate variability and heart rate changes across uh, the daytime. And this has to do with cortisol. This has to do with energy reserve and fatigue um, after sleep and after rest. I mean, these things obviously wear off throughout the day. That's There's a reason why you start getting tired later in the day as opposed to maybe you know 10 o'clock in the morning or so. So there's all these variables that do come into play. But food is a communicator. It's a master communicator and regulator of hormones, of neurotransmitters, of neuromodulators. So we have to keep all of those in mind. So what's the net net of this? Kind of what's the end story? What's the end goal? Track and see how food affects you. Utilize things like Hanu or other biometrics to look at nervous system functioning. Look at glucose regulation. Look at cortisol regulation. A lot harder to do, but maybe one day we're going to have something similar to like a CGM that's going to detect and test that. But all of these things are variables and they're factors. And they're things that you can utilize to better inform how our environments and the things that we are interacting with affect our nervous system, how they affect it from a duration standpoint, from a longevity standpoint, from a severity standpoint. And just see, because it may be that the quantity and quality of food don't impact you as much as it does me or as it does someone else. That's the only way we know. It's it, The only way we know is to test. And so that's my kind of end goal here for you is to kind of monitor it, to test it out. Uh, utilize both kind of the marrying of your objective data and then your self-report or your subjective data. So that's kind of what I've been doing, testing a lot of these biometrics on nutrition and on food, and hopefully that was helpful for you. So before we jump into uh, the two Q&A questions for today, I do want to talk to you about some really cool studies. So let's jump into that. So I'm a huge fan of every single morning, really kind of diving into what's the newest literature out there on certain subjects related to things like breath work and stress and mental health and heart rate variability and HRV biofeedback and exercise and wellness and optimization and whatever you, you know, put in put in the blank. And one uh, study that I came across um, it was actually two, but one led to the other. It, it came out uh, actually here pretty recently in the Journal of Cognition and Emotion. And I'll link to this in the show notes, all on hanuhealth.com. It's called Brief, Brief Breath Awareness, a little alliteration on brief breath, Brief Breath Awareness, Training Yields poor working memory performance in the context of acute stress. Let me read that again so it makes sense and I don't, uh, and I can enunciate correctly. Brief breath awareness training yields poor working memory performance in the context of acute stress. And this was done by some researchers out of the University of Wisconsin and the University of California, Los Angeles, so UCLA. And this was a really, really intriguing research. So 
what it was actually looking at was this concept of mindful awareness. And they utilized some different mindful awareness strategies to see that if we implemented these, could these help prime the nervous system to be better or more um, uh, resilient to stress when we encounter something like an acute stressor, something that tests us in the moment. Does this make us clearer, more crisp when we engage in this? And the one that they really honed in on was this practice of breath awareness. Now, breath awareness is a practice of non-manipulation of breathing, simply understanding and noticing and following the sensation and pattern of breath. Again, not manipulating, not slowing respiratory rate down, just simply engaging in more mindful awareness of breathing. They also compared this to other brief periods of things like loving kindness, mindfulness meditation, gratitude practices, and then they had one that was just an intentional control. So a control group um, that were not doing any of these practices. Uh, They had 162 participants, and then they looked at uh, four different training groups that I mentioned earlier. They did something called the OSPAN. The OSPAN is an operation span task where basically what they'll do within the context. And again, I'll include all of this, um, uh, all of this study within the show notes. But what they ended up doing uh, with this OSPAN test is that participants uh, were uh, provided this stressor. So this is like an again, and this is more or less an objective. Uh, measurement of executive functioning. And what they did is that they provided these individuals with a stressor. uh, And the stressor was, is that they gave them simple arithmetic problems that they were to calculate. And this was again, after they had engaged in the uh, mindfulness type practice, one of the three categories that I mentioned, loving kindness, gratitude, or breath awareness. Uh, And then they also had to memorize letters or a sequence of letters while they did these simple arithmetic problems. So they put them under this acute stressor to see how well um, they could activate executive functioning after engaging in this practice or with the control group without that. So this is the interesting thing that they found. And again, this was a randomized clinical controlled study. What they ended up finding uh, which I thought was absolutely fascinating, is that amongst all the groups and their baselines, they really didn't differ. So it, with when they did the OSPAN test, uh, they were all kind of hanging there together. Um, they also noticed too, and one of the things they looked at was positive and negative affects. So how did it affect them from a emotional-based standpoint? And as you can guess, if we introduce a stressor, like simple, even simple arithmetic problems and memorizing letters, that this can significantly impact uh, people's affect. Um, it goes typically a little bit more negative and positive effect uh, is decreased because we're in a stressful situation. So what they found is, is that yes, across all groups, there was a large increase in negative affect, a small decrease in what we call positive affect. And this was from the baseline to post stressor. Uh, what they then found though, is that there was only one condition that did not improve performance. Loving kindness, gratitude, they actually both improved acute stress performance. So basically, with the use of those mindfulness-based skills, executive functioning uh, indeed did increase overall uh, ability to handle that stressor and activated executive functioning better than the control condition. 
There was one though that didn't. We actually saw a significant decline in performance and it was breath awareness. This to me was absolutely fascinating because I thought that, you know, there would be a really good activation of executive functioning, just becoming mindful of breathing, just kind of watching and noticing. But turns out it didn't. Breath awareness actually worsened performance relative to the controls. So it was worse than loving kindness. It was worse than gratitude. And it was worse than controls. The one interesting thing here is, is kind of looking at what did the researchers actually believe the reason was for this? And in the end, they're kind of like, we don't really know. Uh, we don't know kind of why it was that there was this breath awareness that didn't affect or actually caused a decline, but it actually was better for these other types of mindfulness-based skills. Uh, they don't really know. It just says that, you know, basically another tenable possibility is that acute stress is less impactful for practices versus non-practice uh, executive functioning task when related to the other two. It's just, it's, it was a weird type of thing that they couldn't understand that breath awareness somehow inhibits cognition and inhibits executive functioning during times of acute stress. So that got me thinking, okay, well, I've always you know, heard and I've read multiple studies on how breath modulation or slow-paced breathing, or um, heart rate variability biofeedback, which is the high-tech version of slow-paced breathing, if you will, in a <laughs> kind of crazy way, um, that I've always heard that, I mean, and, and knew from research that does indeed affect it. So for me, I was like, now let's go kind of peruse the research and see if I can find something on that. So a new study that just came out very recently, uh, which is actually uh, called, and I'm pulling it up right now. It's here on my, it, it was here on my computer and it timed me out. It's called the Influence of Slow-Paced Breathing on Executive Functioning. So the Influence of Slow-Paced Breathing. So let's talk about the distinction between breath, breath awareness and slow-paced breathing. The one difference is that slow-paced breathing is an actual manipulation of the respiratory rate. Um, so we're actually taking people down to um, six breaths per minute or so. Within the study, it was six breaths per minute. This was published uh, here recently in the Journal of Psychophysiology. Again, the influence of so slow-paced breathing on executive functioning. So what did they find within this study? They found that there were distinctive immediate effects of slow-paced breathing on increasing cognition and mental acuity during slow-paced breathing during an acute stress. Um, so the acute stressor that they provided here was the Stroop test. And if you're not familiar with the Stroop test, it is a working memory test um, that's really looking at overall attention span and inhibition. And so what we mean by that is that you are presented in, within the Stroop test, you're presented with uh, the word of a color. So that could be like red, but it's colored in a different color. So you might see the word red, R-E-D, but it might be written in blue ink. And you're asked to say either the name of the ink or your, or the color of the word or say the word itself. And because of um, the, the, the difficulty that the brain has and our central nervous system has with differentiating between color and word, especially when you're put on a timer and you have that acute stressor, causes or it, it, uh, it, it um, 
should result in us having to activate our executive functioning in frontal lobe uh, and prefrontal cortex in a much more distinctive fa uh, fashion. So we have to engage that a lot more heavily during that time because it's stressful on the brain. And what we found is that when we engage in slow-paced breathing, we indeed actually increase heart rate variability. So they tested that within the context of this study. And then once we also enhance cardiac vagal activity, we see that this indeed uh, will enhance executive functioning, especially as compared to the control groups. So there's a difference here. And the key uh, feature here is that in order to enhance cognition and executive functioning, that a more mindfulness-based skill that's just having you look at your breathing and observe your breathing and follow your breath without manipulating or changing the breath may actually not be so great for you. Potentially, it looks like it can potentially inhibit executive functioning. But what can enhance executive functioning is the uh, fine distinction between non-manipulative breathing and manipulative breathing or changing your inherent respiratory rate to a more slow paced breathing. So if you want to enhance executive functioning and cognition, if you're at work, you need to perform well, that slow paced breathing can do it. And I like the combination of marrying those two, of mindful awareness of the breath, but also engaging in volitional, slow-paced breathing. So again, I will link those over in the show notes for you all. Um, I think that these are just absolutely fascinating studies on how we can significantly impact executive functioning and cognition, especially when we're under acute stress with slow paced breathing. So any of you high school students out there who are about to take your SATs or your ACTs or whatever they take nowadays, um, slow paced breathing prior and during the actual test itself can be really great on enhancing executive functioning. We see that from peer reviewed journals and literature in these blue ribbon journals. So hopefully that's something that you can take with you that you can use practically throughout your day. And if you are engaging in like mindfulness practices, those are good. But I'd even encourage you to work on kind of like this volitional change of breath rate in order to enhance overall executive functioning. All right. So we're about 37, 40 minutes or so into this uh, podcast. And I think it's a great time to transition from all of this uh, amazing information, hopefully, to listener Q&A. So let's do it now. All right. So this is the part of the podcast where you, the listener, will write in or ask us on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, email us at podcast.hanuhealth.com. You'll send in kind of your requests for Patrick and I to answer questions on all things breath work and stress and health optimization and mental health and whatever it may be. And then we select your question. And if we select your question, we read it here and answer your question. Then you can let us know by sending us uh, an email and saying, hey, you guys answered my question on the live Q&A. And we'll send you out a fully free Hanu Health uh, gift box and gift package with a lot of goodies like a water bottle that has our logo on it, some really cool die cut stickers for your car or for your you know laptop. We, you can also get the book Oxygen, so not, sorry, not Oxygen Advantage, um, Atomic Focus that Patrick has signed personally, some mouth tape, some really cool stuff. So we got two questions that we're going to ask uh, today, and then I'm going to answer uh, without my trusty co-host, 
Patrick, uh, but hopefully um, I will do justice and Patrick won't tell me that these are completely off base responses. So again, write us podcast at hanuhealth.com. Question number one comes from Brandon. Brandon asks, I'm having a hard time understanding if my breathing mechanics are still dysfunctional. It's hard to tell if my ribs are expanding like you have said that they should. Am I doing something wrong? Also, I've heard that when you are exhaling, that it can that it can help to gently pull your navel inward. Is that okay? Really interesting questions. I like this. So one of the things that Patrick talks about is that there are three components uh, that are highly effective in helping to stimulate and change the nervous system and to engage uh, the vagal break and the parasympathetic nervous system. And these are to change biomechanics, biochemistry, and cadence. We're not going to focus on biochemistry or cadence right now because the question here is really about the biomechanics. And biomechanics are so incredibly important. In the field of heart rate variability biofeedback that I've been in for a very long time, that typically is a topic that isn't discussed as much or it's not discussed in as much detail as need be had. And this can be quite problematic. Let me explain. The one thing that happens when people become extremely anxious and over time that anxiety builds or that stress builds is that people typically will take shorter, less tidal volume breaths. And what I mean by that is that shorter breaths are typically more thoracic. They come from the chest. So when you see somebody having a panic attack, which is really the more or the most extreme version of anxiety is that these individuals will breathe very fast, very rapidly from the chest or even sometimes from the shoulders. You see the shoulders going up and down. <laughs> Again, that's more panic attack, but that's what we see. Or it comes from the chest. Now, for most people, this typically will happen autonomically, automatically, without thought, subconsciously. They're not really thinking about regulating it, and it just comes from the chest. Um, another thing that happens automatically for a lot of people is that instead of breathing nasally, which we know is quite effective in boosting nitric oxide and helping with slowing down the pace of breathing and resistance of breathing, uh, we know that a lot of people will transition from nose to mouth. So this combination of thoracic chest breathing, rapid breathing, as well as mouth breathing is basically a physiological and a psychophysiological recipe for disaster. So what we really want to do is inherently change the mechanics of breathing. For a really long time, a lot of yogis and a lot of other individuals who are in breath work were teaching this concept of breathing deep and low, so low and slow breathing, what we call LSD breathing. I listened to that podcast I did with David Jackson on that. We talk about LSD breathing, which is not a drug-induced breathing, but is actually that low, slow diam diaphragmatic breathing. Uh, the concept was typically taught of like putting the hand on the navel uh, or just below the navel or just above the navel. And then when we inhale, feel that, uh, that hand moving in an outward direction. Now, one of the problems that can happen when people do that is that, yes, they're getting air down low within the bottom part of the lungs and allowing the stomach to come out. But a lot of times it feels forceful for individuals. It's stressful. And we'll see heart rate variability go down when people do that because they're inhaling and they're almost like trying to push, actively push the stomach out, actively trying to use pressure um, to engage the stomach. And that 
is typically not quite effective. Yes, they see the hand going back and forth, but for a lot of people, it doesn't feel good. And then their biometric data would actually indicate that it's not working very effectively for them. So there are some people though, who will make that transition and they can do it effectively. So when Brandon asks, like, I can't tell if I'm expanding, you know, my, my ribs the right way. This is actually what we call lateral expansion of the ribs, which Patrick talks about. So instead of putting the hand on the belly where you can have some of those problematic issues of force, we can actually put the hands on the rib cage. And when we inhale, we want to feel the lateral expansion. So you want to feel the hands go in an outward direction. And that outward direction um, is actually indicative of an expansion of the lungs. It's activating the diaphragm by pushing it downward toward the pelvic floor and allowing for a more low and slow, deep breath. So that's what we are really referring to when we say deep. So for Brandon, for you, if you're not feeling the rib cage, it's hard to see me on the webcam, so I'm going to put it up higher. If you're not feeling the rib cage going outward and inward on the breath, then that would be one thing that I would really hone in and focus in on is seeing whether or not, um, sorry, somebody outside just started some, uh, it's really early in the morning, but somebody started their construction work, uh, nice and early in the morning. Uh, one thing that you want to feel again, is just those hands moving in and out. And again, one thing you don't want to try to do is actively expand it. But what I have found is that if you try to actively expand it by like volitionally, like trying to put pressure on it, kind of like you can do with your stomach, it's a lot harder to actually make it move. But when you engage in a real good, low, slow, deep breath, you'll feel the lateral expansion of, of the ribs. So I do like that as the main feel as opposed to the hand on the stomach. But one thing that I will say, it's my caveat to all this is that you don't want to get hung up on this idea of having to engage in the perfect mechanics because that really takes your focus away and the mindset away. If we get kind of focused on this perfectionistic idea or mindset of what it should be or what it should feel like, then a lot of times you're going to see that it's going to stress you out more and that the effects of the breathing pattern aren't going to be nearly as effective in reducing your stress response, may even induce it, if you will. You may see heart rate variability go down or heart rate go up. Those are problems that we really want to try and avoid. So the biggest thing, again, and when we talk about breathing mechanics being dysfunctional, what we really want to, to do here is to move away from this thoracic breathing, from mouth breathing, from clavicle or shoulder-based breathing, and really go down deep and activate the diaphragm. And this is a process that's not that difficult. We were physiologically meant to do this and made to do this. So it is not one that is difficult inherently for the body to adjust to, but it does take some time if the body is adjust to a more stressed based version of breathing. So that's, that's my, my thoughts there. Now, in regards to the gentle pull of the navel, this is a really interesting one because I found a subsection of individuals who find this to be really effective, like a gentle pull. The one problem though, that you can have is that again, we use too much volition. We start trying to rip the, the navel towards the spine. And when we do that, then we end up losing the pace of breathing. We lose the smoothness and rhythm of the breathing, and that can affect the nervous system pretty substantially. So what I would say is that if you do use a pull, 
of the navel. It's just a simple, gentle pull towards the spine. It's not a, oh, let me try to actively really pull the navel in towards the spine. It's a gentle pull. I have actually used a technique um, that I find to be quite effective most of the time for me. And I've found a lot of other people that it's very effective as well. It doesn't mean it's always effective. But there's an insertion um, that you can feel uh, where kind of the top part of your abs or your abdomen, it meets kind of like that cross of the rib cage. And when I say kind of the cross of the rib cage, it's kind of like where the ribs stop and where the open space begins. And it and it kind of operates like almost like a V shape right there, um, or maybe even more like a U shape there. Now that open space where you can kind of push pressure in and you don't feel bone, I've actually noticed that for myself, when I visualize that spot and gently pull from that spot, uh, I actually feel a significant difference there and see a significant difference in heart rate variability. And that's more effective for me than focusing lower and then the navel. It's actually focusing a bit higher. Now, there is nothing that I am aware of in the research or in the literature that indicates that that's a formalized technique, that that's one that inherently will change physiology. And for me, it's an interesting one because I just subjectively feel better and I see objective data that changes when I have a gentle slight pull from that upper part of my abdomen as opposed to my navel. Because when I focus on my navel, I almost feel like I'm sucking in, like almost like I'm trying to like, it's like, you know, you're sucking in your belly. Um, like, you know, if you're trying to fit yourself into some tight pants or something, I get that feel a little bit more. And so I just don't like it. It's a little bit more of a discomfortable feel or an uncomfortable feel, discomfortable. I don't think that's the word, uncomfortable feel. Um, so I, that's what, what I go with. I think for most people though, I've seen there is more effectiveness in changing their physiology and changing their self-report or subjective response when they engage in a completely just like volitionally passive breath where they're not trying to manipulate different parts of their body. They're focusing on different parts of the body, but they're not actually trying to actively manipulate for a lot of people that works effectively. And the reason being is because they can engage in a more realistic smooth, non-adjusted type breath. And the body resonates with that. The heart resonates with that when the lungs feel kind of that smoothness factor and they're not being uh, kind of pushed and pulled, which could offset that rhythm. So again, this is why you try and you practice and you experiment. It's because there are certain things that are going to be effective and work for you. And there's certain things that are not. So Brandon, that's a great question. I really like it uh, because I think that it's asking about mechanics and mechanics are very subjective. Um, there are some general rules of thumbs, uh, but it's all about just kind of practice and experimenting. And the only way you can do that um, is by using Hanu and tracking your data, but also checking in subjectively with how it feels in that given moment. So great one. All right, let's move on to question number two. So question number two comes from Jennifer and she says, when I am doing breathwork exercises, especially to relieve stress, I have found that instead of sitting upright, I actually like to lean over still seated. Is this okay? I just feel better when I do this. This is a great 
question. I mentioned and I teased at the beginning of the podcast that we would talk about posture and positioning and how that affects nervous the nervous system. In general, when we look at the research and we look at the effects of posture on baseline HRV, so this is just non-manipulation. We're not engaging in breathwork practice. We're not engaging in biofeedback. What does posture do to heart rate variability? We know that bettering overall posture, which means sitting in a more upright, dignified position, having a nice, stable core, excuse me, core can be quite effective in helping you to regulate nervous system functioning. We see better parasympathetic or vagal output when people are engaged in this. Now, there is a difference as I shift here. There is a difference between you being in an upright, dignified, good posture position that is still relaxed as opposed to upright, dignified, postured position that is rigid, major difference here. When we are engaging the core, but overly activating our back, shoulders, trap muscles, maybe engaging in some more upper body and maybe even lower body muscular activation. We've looked at studies where when people activate these or overactivate these, this significantly impairs autonomic functioning. So that's one thing to really keep in mind. In general, when you're at your workspace, if you're standing or you're sitting, a good posture that's upright and dignified, however, not overly rigid and engaging and over-engaging muscles can be very effective in helping to maintain a better baseline HRV. As soon as you start becoming rigid and engaging too much muscular activity and contraction, we see heart rate variability go down and heart rate go up. So again, these are more general rules of thumb And then I'm going to talk really more about specifically breath work and biofeedback practices here in just a second. One thing I will mention, and this is something to remember too, that neck and head posture are incredibly important. The reason being is because you have vagal innervations, the preganglionic neurons of your vagus nerve branches are running from the medulla and pons of your hindbrain. So up here closer to kind of like the base of the brain and at the Uh, dorsal part of your spine. And these will innervate down the back of the radial part of the neck. And they will then innervate out to uh, postganglionic neurons that are connected to cells all across the body, but more specifically in organs or especially large scale organs. It's really all organs, but namely heart, lungs. So one of the things that we want to keep in mind here is that neck posture can be quite effective uh, in enhancing overall stress resiliency and autonomic functioning. If we are putting too much inherent pressure on the neck, whether we're kind of pinching or pressing against the vagal nerve, this can indeed inhibit vagal outflow and, and inhibit vagal communication. Now, not much is known about this area other than there is inhibition. Whether that inhibition can cause significant change is still kind of debatable, but there are some really cool studies on this. So one of the things that I would say is that maintaining good neck posture as I rotate my neck around is good as well. So having, again, that non-rigid but upright relaxed neck is a really important thing. If you're looking at your phone and slouching over all the time, that can put inherent pressure on your neck. Um, if you're you know, using kind of the, the chest caved in, shoulders forward, that can put pressure on the spine and on the neck. 
and everything runs through the spine. Everything runs through the neck. So it's an interesting thing just to keep into consideration. Now, this comes back to Jennifer's question of when she's doing breathwork exercises to help relieve stress. Upright positions are typically not as good for her as a leaned over position. So when she says leaned over, I'm assuming she means like feet are still flat on the ground. Maybe she's leaning over. I can't really do it on camera here because that's got to stay in front of the mic. Maybe she's kind of leaning forward. The back, instead of being straight up, is kind of uh, tilted downward towards the ground. Uh, maybe not necessarily parallel with the ground, but you know, maybe thinking like a 45 degree angle or, or something like that. Um, uh, something you know to that to that extent. Um, um, what is that something that is, can be effective for breathwork exercises? The answer is, is that I tell people that breathwork exercises and what changes kind of their biometric and subjective data is really individual and it highly can be highly differentiated. So the better response that I have to that is give it a go and try it. If you're finding that your data are changing, if you're finding that your subjective response to stress is better when you lean over, then lean over, like do it. Um, there, uh, there is advantages at a baseline perspective of being in an upright, dignified, good postured position with the feet flat on the floor or with your standing kind of that straight back when you're not rigid. We know that from research, but breathwork practice is very different. One of the cool things from a physiological perspective, that is if you're engaging in slow paced breathing, if you lean over and if you actually round kind of the back, kind of like in that cat cow position, I've done that too, just sitting down and doing cat cow, like a yoga move uh, and with kind of the pace of my breathing. I have seen in myself substantial changes in heart rate variability. So there's times where like I'm really stressed, my heart rate variability is down where I will sit in the chair. If I'm standing or if, even if I'm sitting and I'll lean over and I'll just do some cat cows and I'll do some really slow paced breathing and my HRV skyrockets. Uh, so it's quite effective for myself as, as well, Jennifer. So you and I share in that. And I found that a lot of people do like that. I think this needs to be more longer term studies should be had on this. Uh, however, if you're finding that you feel better doing that, if you're finding that your data are changing when you do that, then do it. I think that that's perfectly okay. Now, do I advocate for you know you leaning over all day and kind of being in that rounded back position all day? No, no, I don't think we have good research to support me saying you should be in that position all day. But if you're looking to relieve acute stress um, throughout the day, if your Hanu goes off and says, hey, it's time to kind of take a break and let's engage in some breath work and you find that that's the best practice for you, do it. If you find that it's you laying on your back on the ground, do it. If you find that you sit upright in a dignified position that's non-rigid, do it. Like whatever works for you, like utilize kind of your body knows, your brain knows what's going to be effective for you. Experiment, try it out, use data. Like these things can be so incredibly helpful. So is it inherently bad? No. Is it okay? Yes. Like if you feel better doing this, then do it. I change things all the time. I never do breath work in the same position every single time. I'll do it leaning over. I One of, my, one of the great things, I've talked about this on the podcast before, I'll do it a lot in child's pose. Um, our co-founder, John Bischke, this is his favorite thing to do. And he sees his HRV skyrocket more so compared to any, and he feels great when he does it. 
And again, when you're leaning over, you're allowing gravity to help expand the lungs. You're opening up the lungs just by leaning over. So there could be a lot of inherent physiological benefits to that. So that's my recommendation, Jennifer. If it works for you, I say keep on going. There's nothing that's going to be inherently wrong or bad with that. I I actually think that there's a ton of good that can come from that. So Jennifer, hope that's helpful. All right. Well, we have gone an hour just by myself, covered a lot of ground, talked about things from eating and nutrition and inflammation and how that impacts nervous system functioning and stress resiliency. We've talked about uh, those studies on breathe, breath, awareness. Oh, that's a tough one. Breathe, breath, awareness brief breath. It's kind of a, uh, that alliteration kind of gets me. And then we talked about slow paced breathing on executive functioning and how effective that can be compared to just being mindfully aware of breathing. And then we had some great questions. So again, always love doing these Q and A's keep submitting these questions. They're extremely helpful for you to ask questions so that other people can hear the response because a lot of other people are dealing or battling with the same issues. And so there's no dumb questions here. Um, I guess there could be, but maybe we won't post these on here. But all the questions we're getting thus far are really, really great. All right, everybody, that's going to wrap us up for today on the Hanu Health Podcast. As always, it's a pleasure being here with you all. I hope this adds value to your life. I hope that this really helps you to consider the importance of breathing and nervous system regulation and what this truly can do for helping you to develop more stress resiliency, more adaptability so that you can have a more meaningful life, live life with purpose, engage in better relationships and social communication. Just really feel like that you're getting the most out of the really, really short time that we have here. And that is so truthful, right? Like this is, we have, we're finite beings on this earth. And so for us, you know, when we were born, the clock started. I know it sounds so morbid, but I use that as motivation to say, well, every single day, like I have to put my best foot forward and make sure that I'm taking care of myself and my family and my friends. And that I'm interacting with the world as best as I can, even though things get crazy at times. And so I hope that again, the Hanu Health Podcast and all that we're doing with our wearable and what we're doing with our platform is helping you to engage in skills that are truly, truly going to make a meaningful impact in your life so that you can also make a meaningful impact in other people's lives. Everybody have a wonderful, wonderful week. And as always, we'll see you next Friday. Thanks for listening to the Hanu Health Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast would not happen without listeners and supporters like you. And the best way to support us and the show is to head on over to iTunes and provide us with a five-star review. This helps us reach others and spread the good word of breathing and stress resiliency. If we read your five-star review on air, please reach out to podcast at hanuhealth.com with your name and mailing address, and we will send you some sweet Hanu gear. Until next time, breathe better and stress less.